2009, October 28th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 24, The Jovian Planets. So we've talked yesterday about the terrestrial planets, and we looked in some detail at them, and we're looking at them with an eye to, is this some place where things could live? Of course, we kind of loaded the question yesterday because we looked at the Earth, the terrestrial planets. What we came, came away with is, well, we know there's life on Earth, so that's kind of an easy one. Mercury is out because it's a dead world with no atmosphere, and it's just getting baked by the sun. The moon is out because it has no atmosphere, and it's getting mostly baked by the sun. Venus is way too hot. It's got a hot, heavy atmosphere. It's got a huge, pressure, high-pressure atmosphere. In fact, one of the sing-songs we usually use for it is the pressure on the surface of the atmosphere is like being one kilometer below the ocean in terms of pressure. It's like 93 atmospheres, so it's pretty ridiculous. It's also ridiculously hot. You can melt lead on the surface. So this is not somewhere you probably are going to look for life. Mars, however, is still in the running, but probably mostly in the past. And so we'll come back to Mars a bit on Friday. So now we want to turn to the rest of the solar system and look at the four outer planets, the so-called Jovian planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and start looking to them to it with an eye of, should we be considering these as places where we should be looking for life or clues to the nature of life on other worlds? So in this lecture, we're going to again play this contrast and compare game where we're going to set up the Jovian planets next to each other and ask, what are their properties? What is there about these that might make these places to look for life or not? So we're going to start out by introducing Jupiter and Saturn. These are a class of planets which we call gas giants, mostly hydrogen and helium, which also will turn out to have very deep metallic hydrogen mantles and rocky and ice cores in their centers. Uranus and Neptune are a different type of planet we refer to as the ice giants. These are relatively thin hydrogen helium atmospheres, but they have very thick, deep ice and rock mantles with a rocky core buried down inside as well. So these are going to be two completely different places. We've only recently recognized the ice giants as really a separate structural family. And we're going to see these not so much in our own solar system here, but we're also going to see these in other solar systems. In fact, most of the planets we've found thus far are either gas or ice giants. We still haven't quite, maybe, gotten into terrestrial-like planets yet around other stars. One of the facts that's going to emerge from our study of the Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune is that they have a lot of hydrogen. The hydrogen means that they're going to have a very different chemistry in their atmospheres than we've seen up to this point. They're going to have what are called reducing atmospheres. These are atmospheres which are dominated by the chemistry of hydrogen rather than oxidation, which is important on places like the terrestrial planets. So they're not going to look, things are not looking too good until we also consider the fact that all the Jovian moons have six of the seven giant, Jovian planets have six of the seven giant moons in the solar system. These are large, differentiated worlds that, in fact, are bigger than all the dwarf planets we know. And these may, in fact, turn out to be some very interesting places to look at, and we'll get to those in the last third of the lecture. So today we're going to be looking at the Jovian planets and their system of moons and see if there's any clues we can get to possible habitability in these systems. So let's just start with a sort of a quick glance at the basic properties. We're in the outer solar system. so. Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars are all crammed deep down inside here, in fact, in the central few pixels in this picture. So if, you know, my, my, I could probably cover up the entire inner solar system with a couple of fingers there. Jupiter is the red circle with a, with a diameter of uh, orbital um, semi-major axis of 5.2 AU, so that's a 10 astronomical unit um, circle there. Saturn's a little further out, almost nine, nine and a half astronomical units. So that's 20 astronomical units across. Remember, the Earth is down at one. So this is really, really out there. 
Since you're further out in the solar system, these have longer periods. It takes Jupiter a little under 12 years to go around the sun once. It takes Saturn nearly 30 years to go around the sun. These are nearly circular orbits, and they nearly are in exactly the plane of the solar system, as defined by the plane of the Earth's orbit, which is the ecliptic. If we look at these planets, and this is showing them to scale, both relative to each other and relative to the Earth, which is our measure of everything in the solar system, Jupiter is a real giant. It really does deserve the word giant. It's 318 times the mass of the Earth and 11.2 times the radius of the Earth. And so you can see the scale of Earth compared to structures in its cloud tops. The so-called Great Red Spot here is one of the most prominent features of the planet Jupiter. We also see these alternating light and dark bands and zones, which are weather systems rolling around in the tops of the atmosphere of Jupiter. This red Great Red Spot, in fact, has been a persistent cyclonic storm which has been observed since Galileo Galilei turned his telescope to Jupiter approximately 400 years ago this month. So these things have been around, this storm has been around for a while. Imagine a hurricane lasting 400 years, and it's the size of the Earth. Saturn is a fairly large planet, but we go a pretty big step down in size. It's more than three times smaller than Jupiter, but it's only a little bit smaller, 9.4 Earth radii instead of 11.2. That immediately tells you that, that Saturn is a really fluffy world. It's actually fairly low density. These are an interesting illustration of some of the ranges we're going to see when we look at planets around other stars. We see a fairly large range of densities, mean densities, weight per volume, mass per volume, in the gas giants, from things up to Jupiter or even slightly heavier, things like Uranus and Neptune that we're about to see. This is kind of 1.2, 1.3 grams per cc. Remember, one gram per cc is, is liquid water on the Earth. This is more like 0 0.6, 0 0.7 grams per cc. It's actually less dense than water. And of course, the other distinguishing feature of Saturn is its beautiful and glorious ring system. This was 161. We'd spend a whole lecture talking about rings. In this class, we're just going to sit there and look at how beautiful they are and pass on. We've learned a great deal about Ju the Jupiter and Saturn systems over the last few decades. There have been a number of spacecraft visits, for example, to the planet Jupiter. At this point, in fact, there are, by my count, seven spacecraft that have gone past, just flown past the planet Jupiter. The first were in the early 1970s, Pioneer 10 and 11. And then, of course, Voyager 1 and 2, a pair of spacecraft sent out into the outer solar system, passed by the planet uh, Jupiter in the year 1979. That was the year I graduated from high school, so I've been, I've been kind of following the Pioneer spacecraft through my entire uh, education. The Ulysses spacecraft, which was actually bound for going over the pole of the sun, was sent out to Jupiter, not to study Jupiter so much as to use Jupiter's gravity to take away enough orbital energy to drop it down in towards the sun. It's actually really hard to drop things into the sun. You have to bleed off an awful lot of energy. The best way to do that is send it out to the biggest gravitating body in the solar system, Jupiter. The Cassini spacecraft was sent by Jupiter in 2001 en route to Saturn. And here again, we're using Jupiter's gravity to give it a little slingshot to kind of whip it out there to get it out to the planet Saturn. If we had to carry all the fuel we needed to travel around the solar system, the spacecraft would be too heavy to launch. So we've learned over the last few decades how to use the gravity of other planets, so-called gravity assists, to speed things up or slow things down by just how we send things past. It's really cool how this stuff works. Newton's laws really work great. Finally, the most recent visitor to uh, Jupiter in a flyby was the New Horizons spacecraft, which went blowing past Jupiter on a Jupiter assist orbit, again in 2007, towards early 2007. Took some nice pictures of the planet on the way by. New Horizons was getting slingshotted out to have an encounter in, ooh, now I'm forgetting, 2014, 
forgetting the year off the top of my head, with the planet, with the former planet, now dwarf planet Pluto. The only large object in the solar system beyond the real distant ones that have not been visited by spacecraft. And then hopefully, while it's on its way out towards Pluto, they're going to try to figure out if there's any other of these Kuiper Belt objects that they could encounter. Unfortunately, Eris, the really big Kuiper Belt object that was the Kennedy 10th planet, is nowhere within the trajectory possibilities. So these are just flybys. They just spent a few days cruising through the Jovian system, taking pictures as they went. But a lot of what we've learned about the Jupiter system, and a lot of the data we'll see when we talk mostly about the interesting giant moons of Jupiter next week, comes from the Galileo orbiter, which arrived in December of 1995, stayed in orbit for um, eight years, and then in December, and well, I don't know if it was December, I can't remember the month now, in 2003, the final fuel was expended to cause it to actually re-enter and, and to go crash into the planet Jupiter and transmit data on its last few bits of the drop. It also carried with it a small atmospheric probe that had dropped into the Jupiter atmosphere in 1995, which gave us our first direct measurements of the, of the atmospheres of a gas giant. Saturn has been visited by four spacecraft. Uh, the first of these was Pioneer 11, which went uh, flying by in September of 1979, and then later Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 in, in 1980 and 1981. I was a Caltech student at this time. This was the big excitement at the time I was there was watching all the data come down from JPL. We learned mo so much more about the Saturn system during those few brief days that we were passing by the system than we learned in the previous 300 years of observations from the Earth. The most exciting mission, of course, is the one that's still going on in its um, 11th, uh, sorry, 12th year, is the Cassini orbiter, which was launched in October of 1997 atop a, uh, an Atlas Centaur rocket. It arrived in uh, the Jupiter or in the Saturn orbit in July 2004 after a Jupiter gravity assist fired its engines and dropped into orbit. In 2005, um, it released a small probe that it was carrying, which landed on the giant moon Titan, successfully soft landed on the planet, transmitted for a couple of minutes before the cold and the atmospheric pressure finally got to it. Um, sending back a wealth of data that we're going to see a bit of next week. And it is still orbiting the planet Saturn. It is currently in an extended mission phase. It has well outlasted its original mission. It is currently the time of Saturn equinox. And so some very exciting images were taken in the last few months when the sun was shining exactly down the ring plane. If you get a chance to look at um, the pictures on the Cassini orbiter, they are some of the most spectacular astronomical pictures taken by any spacecraft. And we're going to see a few of them when we get into the talking about the Saturn moon system next week. So let's take a look now, so sort of the basic view of these planets. What are they made of? What are they like inside? Jupiter and Saturn are what we call gas giants. It's a class of very large planets which are mostly hydrogen and helium. They have extremely deep hydrogen-helium atmospheres. Their total composition looks pretty much like the composition of our sun, with slight modifications, but to a first approximation, they're basically mostly hydrogen and helium, and the rest of it is just stuff. We've learned from the spacecraft that have flown by, we can get detailed ideas of what their contents are like by looking at how gravity perturbs the spacecraft orbits as they swing by. And we've worked this through now with advanced computer models of the interior and come up with the following picture. Now, the details of this picture are still somewhat uncertain, but the basic outlines are correct. What we see of these planets are the cloud tops. These do not have solid surfaces. As we go down deeper into the atmosphere, we get into most of the bulk of the planet is in the form first of molecular hydrogen, H2, two hydrogen atoms put together into a single molecule, making a really deep, very dense atmosphere. Don't think of this as going through the air here. The pressure is so high, it's, it's actually almost indistinguishable from an extremely deep ocean. 
when you get down to there. When you get even deeper, the pressure rises to millions of atmospheres. And when the pressure rises to something like four million atmospheres on a pure hydrogen gas or nearly pure hydrogen gas, you actually compress the hydrogen until it makes a phase transition into a really strange state. It turns basically into a metal. It starts behaving like steel. Not steel in terms of rigidity, but steel in terms of electrical conductivity. It's still a liquid. It's actually flowing. It's liquid metallic hydrogen. This liquid metallic hydrogen is highly conducting, and it begins to flow with convection currents. You get a hot bottom and a cooler outside, relatively speaking, and you start setting up convection flow. Hmm, where have we seen that before? Convection flow in a conducting metal, in this case hydrogen rather than iron, in the Earth, sets up a powerful magnetic field in Jupiter. In fact, Jupiter has an extremely powerful magnetic field, as does Saturn, although it's somewhat smaller because its metallic hydrogen zone is smaller. Deep down inside, we believe there's a rock and ice core in the center of both Jupiter and Saturn. Saturn is lower mass, lower density, so it recapitulates some of this layer cake structure we see in Jupiter. Cloud tops, deep molecular hydrogen layer, and then this metallic hydrogen mantle sitting on top of a rock and ice core buried deep in the center, kind of like a little pit in the bottom of the center of the peach. It recapitulates the structure, but at different, different layers because it's lower mass and lower density. And so the press of gravity, which determines the transition between clouds, molecular hydrogen, and metallic hydrogen layers, is going to occur at different places. But they're shown here next to each other in scale and also on the scale of the Earth. Now, to give you an idea of the degree of compression, the rock and ice cores here are estimated to have masses between 10 and 15 times the mass of the Earth. Notice this is one Earth mass of rock and iron down here. So what you're seeing, these things are look tiny, but remember, they're extremely compressed and they're very massive. We do not know the exact si masses and sizes of these cores. One should probably put a little question mark. That's why they're drawn exactly the same in these diagrams. It's very difficult to know what size core there should be. And in fact, to be perfectly honest with you, there's a class of models that posits that there's no core inside of Jupiter, that in fact is hydrogen all the way down. We just really aren't sure yet. This really does press the limits of our ability to model large gravitating planets like this. And so it's a very active area of research. But this is the basic picture you've got. These are gas bags. These are gigantic gas bags, and they have no solid surfaces whatsoever. There's nowhere to stand. There's nowhere to swim. And there's virtually nowhere to fly. These are extremely crazy places. Certainly nothing like what we've seen before. They also have another interesting property. I've shown two photographs, or photographs, images here, taken not at visible light, but at infrared light. And this one's a composite, uh, Saturn down here is a composite of visible and infrared light, just so you get some scale. If we look at Jupiter and Saturn and we measure the amount of radiation coming off of them, we find something quite surprising. They're actually radiating more energy than they get from the sun. Now, the Earth does this slightly as well. The Earth gets a great deal of radiation from the sun, and it bounces some of that back. But it also radiates a little bit of internal heat leaking up to the surface. But when you add the balance books together, the Earth is, in fact, very slightly in equilibrium, pretty much in equilibrium with the sun. There's as much energy coming in as there is going out to a first approximation. The, the corrections are small and have to do with details. But in Jupiter and Saturn, that budget is off by a factor of a few, a couple. So, for example, I, I forget the exact number for Jupiter, but it's almost two times as much energy is coming off Jupiter than is received by sunlight. Where is this energy coming from? Well, you can kind of see some of it. These are pictures actually taken in the infrared in bands where you can see the, the hot, the bright spots here is heat leaking out of the center and sort of drawn in this nice kind of reddish picture to make it look like something hot and glowing. 
You can see this in Saturn here as well as in, as in Jupiter. What's happening is these things are actually making their own energy, not from radioactive decay like on the Earth or Venus, but actually in the form of gravitational contraction. These things are not rigid structures. These are gas balls. And a gas ball is in basically something called hydrostatic equilibrium or hydrostatic balance, where the pressure of the gas pushing out roughly balances the, the inward crush of gravity trying to hold the two together. And the two kind of work in entente. They basically try to come into balance with each other. Pressure gets too high, the thing expands until the temperature falls off, and then it pressure drops off and it falls back down. You overcompress it, you heat, the increasing heat produces exact pressure and it sort of pushes back. So it's a stable balance. But these things are not closed systems and heat leaks out. And as heat leaks out, it allows the interior to cool a little bit and it contracts a little bit. And it will continue this contraction bit very, very slowly over its history. Now eventually it's going to reach the point, in fact has already reached the point in the interiors where the metallic hydrogen is formed, where the rules have changed about compression, the relation between pressure and temperature. I won't go into that. It's basically something called degeneracy occurs, where it basically starts shutting down the contraction slowly. So eventually, these things are not going to collapse down to zero and fall into black holes. They're going to basically reach a new equilibrium where they're basically going to be metallic hydrogen spheres. <laughs> Crazy things. But the fact that they're contracting means that they're tapping into the gravitational energy of the immense bulk of these things. And that's actually a source of energy. So this gravitational energy releases energy in the interior. And that interior helps heat the insides of the planets and actually drives their weather. These things are five and ten times further from the sun than the Earth. Remember, the weather on the Earth is driven by sunlight for the most part. So if you're ten times further than the Earth, in the case of Saturn, you have ten squared or a hundred times less sunlight. Brightness falls like one over distance squared. So how do you power any weather with one one-hundredth the sunlight you see on Earth? And the answer is, it gets almost all of its weather powered from its internal energy. So these things are actually got a lot of energy welling up from inside of them. They're not quite failed stars, like people will often call them in, in some textbooks. They're a long ways from being a failed star, but they're very interesting objects all by themselves in that regard. Very different than what we've seen before. So these are the basic properties of gas, gas giants. Any questions about gas giants before we move along? Now, the other two planet, giant planets of the outer solar system are Uranus and Neptune. They orbit much further out than either Jupiter or Saturn. Uh, Uranus is out at 19.2 astronomical units. Neptune all the way out at 30.1. So now we're really getting far out into the solar system. When you're out here at uh, Neptune, sunlight is now diminished by 30 squared or 1 900th, less than 1 nearly one-tenth of one percent of what we get on Earth. So these are very cold places where the sunlight's basically failing. All these worlds are expected to be fairly icy. They take a long time to go around the sun. It takes Uranus 84 years to go around the sun and Neptune 165 years. But again, the orbits are nearly circular and they're nearly in the plane of the solar system, just like we've seen before. If we look at these planets, however, we've suddenly taken a big step down in size. We've gone from 318 and 90 some odd Earth masses now dropping down to 14 and 17 Earth masses in round numbers, respectively, and their sizes are between around in round numbers about 4 and 3.9 Earth radii. So now we're starting to look at worlds which are a substantial fraction of the size of the Earth and a substantial fraction of the Earth's mass. They're very different looking. First of all, you'll notice that they're blue. 
The blue comes primarily from methane absorption in the atmosphere. It's now cold enough in these outer portions of the solar system that methane is now sort of either in droplet form or in liquid form. It basically becomes the primary constituent in either ice crystal, methane ice crystals or methane liquid or even methane gas are kind of all those phases mixed together in these atmospheres. If we slice the planets open, we find out that they're in fact quite different than Jupiter and Saturn. And this is why we refer to these as the ice giants. We used to refer to them all as gas giants, but it's been the last few years we've realized that the numbers for Uranus and Neptune just didn't add up. You could not make gas giants of the size of Uranus and Neptune and have their properties look anything like what we saw. And with the spacecraft flybys refining those numbers a great deal, we realized that we were dealing with a slightly different kind of beast than Jupiter and Saturn. This is a big change from when I first learned astronomy, where we just called them all gas giants. It's only been the last few years this term ice giants really come into general use. On the outside, they look pretty much superficially like the Jovian planets. They have hydrogen cloud tops with ammonia and water vapor and, and, and methane ices and, and gases in the, in the outer cloud tops. You get down below the cloud tops and you get a layer of molecular hydrogen but, but when you get down to the molecular hydrogen layer, below that is a very slushy mantle of ices. The ices are water ice, methane ice, and, and ammonia ice. So these are all compounds of oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen with hydrogen. They form sort of a slushy liquid. Again, it's kind of like the same way that the rocky mantle, the silicate mantle in the Earth, is kind of a slushy, mushy thing that's partway between a solid and a liquid. The same deal goes on here. This is under extreme pressure. It probably flows. It probably has convection currents. But it's not going to generate the real, it'll generate magnetic fields, but nothing quite as big as we see out here, for example, on Jupiter and Saturn, but still present. There's a lot of questions about the magnetic fields of Jupiter and uh, Uranus and Neptune. We only were by, be able to fly by the planets for a couple of days, so all of our knowledge is still very provisional in many ways. <coughs> and then down deep inside, we expect rocky cores whose masses get to be of order in Earth mass. So again, a rocky core of still very uncertain size, but under very high compression. So we slice these open, and they're very different. They're slush balls surrounded by hydrogen. They've got a big enough gravity to hang on to hydrogen and build up these heavy hydrogen atmospheres. But what we really find are water ice, ammonia ice, and methane ices. If we look at the gas giants, both Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune, on this plot I've shown a number of times before, where we're plotting on the x-axis the equilibrium temperature at the location of these planets from the sun. And we're going to slightly enhance what those temperatures are, not just the equilibrium temperature from sunlight, but we also add into the effect the internal temperature in these planets, as is measured by, me by using infrared radiation. And on the vertical axis, we measure the escape speed of various molecules or atoms from the atmospheres of these. So if you had a body with a temperature of 1,000 degrees Kelvin, these are the escape speeds that you would get compared to the thermal speeds of all of these various um, atoms. So for example, pure hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, depending on temperature, has a, a, a thermal speed which is approaching the escape speed for, uh, exceeds the escape speed for Earth and Venus here. So again, the way to read this diagram is if your planet or body, moon, whatever, is above one of these lines, your gravity is big enough to hold on to those gases, whereas if the point is below the lines, those gases will escape from you. So we see again, as we expect, for Earth and Venus, 
Helium and hydrogen are not found in our atmospheres. They can escape readily because they are moving faster than the Earth and Venus escape speeds from the tops of the atmospheres. But we could hold on to water vapor, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide, which we do. We can hold on to methane too, but there isn't a whole lot of methane in our atmospheres. When we get up to Jupiter and Saturn, they're way above the hydrogen and helium lines. In fact, they'd be above the hydrogen and helium lines even if they were within a fraction of an astronomical unit from the sun. These things are huge and their gravity is so big they can hold on to and keep and retain heavy hydrogen helium atmospheres. So the bigger a planet gets in mass, the stronger its gravity gets, the more and more the more lighter gases it can grab onto. And because hydrogen and helium are the most abundant elements in the universe, if you can hold on to hydrogen and helium, you can hold on, remember, it's like what 99.9% percent, 99% of all the mass in the universe is in hydrogen and helium, at least in, in you know, gaseous material. So if you can grab onto and latch onto hydrogen and helium to build your atmosphere, you can build really big atmospheres. So that's something we're going to have to keep in mind when we're looking at places we want to look for for life. Really large planets build really, really heavy atmospheres, mostly of hydrogen and helium. Even Uranus and Neptune are capable of holding on to hydrogen and helium because they're far enough out in the solar system that they're able to do so. For example, if Uranus and Neptune were in closer to where Earth, Venus, or even Mars were, they would actually be starting to get to the point where it's getting kind of marginal for their outer atmospheres to hang on to gases anymore. You have to move them pretty far in before they start having troubles hanging on to their gases. But out here at, at uh, 20 to 30 astronomical units, they have no problem whatsoever holding on to hydrogen and helium. So why aren't their atmospheres as big and heavy as those of Jupiter and Saturn? Well, part of the answer is they're out at 19, 20, 20 and uh, 30 astronomical units. They're way far away from the sun where the disk of material that the sun formed out of was beginning to thin out. So even though they are big enough to hold on to hydrogen and helium, they actually didn't have much hydrogen and helium to grab onto. So they grew much less, and so you only get things about 15, 17 times the mass of the Earth. Jupiter and Saturn are right in the thick of the heaviest part of the gaseous, icy portions of the original solar nebula the system formed out of, and their masses allowed them to grow extremely large. Now, I've said that all as if that's really certain. And let me be perfectly frank that that's our current picture of how this works, but our picture is not perfect yet. There's still some problems about how you can grow a Jupiter as big as it is in the time you need to. So this is one of the areas of active research, is understanding the mode by which planets grow by this gravity accretion, the sucking up and hoovering up of hydrogen and helium. It's actually a non-trivial problem. We think we got the outlines right. We can roughly build things of Jupiter-Saturn size in Jupiter-Saturn places. And when you get out to Uranus and Neptune places, you get kind of things that are Uranus-Neptune size, but not always. It's still, there's still some things we don't quite grasp about the problem yet that we're still working on. But really in this diagram, it's pretty clear that whatever gets onto these is hung onto these things as a gas system. Yes, sir? Um, I think there might be a mistake That is the temperature at the top of the exosphere. Sorry, technical question from ITA. Yes, someone, but he didn't notice. Gee, it is not a thousand Kelvin here on Earth, but it is at the top of the atmosphere, and that's where this evaporation matters, right? Going from the surface, you got to claw your way up through 50 kilometers of atmosphere. So the real temperature that matters is the temperature of what's called the exosphere, basically the top of your atmosphere, because that's where the escape from. It evaporates top down. Good catch. That was good. Okay.
Now, we've said before as we've looked at these things, the first thing that strikes you about the Jovian planets is they don't have solid surfaces. Right? There's nowhere to stand at all on these things. If you fell into the Jupiter, you would basically sink until the pressure crushed you and mashed you up and turned you into sort of you know, organic goo that becomes one with Jupiter. Okay, That's not a very good thing to do. If we look at, in addition, the fact that they're basically high atmospheres dominated by hydrogen also has another implication. The chemistry is completely dominated by hydrogen chemistry. Now, this is very different than what we saw on the Earth. When you have chemistry dominated by hydrogen chemistry, this is what the chemists would refer to as reducing chemistry. Reducing chemistry is those things that basically take electrons away, reduce the number of electrons. And these are things that are basically going to give you compounds that are very rich in hydrogen. So, for example, you will form hydrogen atoms, will form in the hydrogen molecule, H2. If you have any oxygen around whatsoever, it's going to get sucked up by hydrogen to make water, H2O. If you have any carbon around, it's going to get soaked up with hydrogen and make methane, CH4. If you've got any nitrogen around, it's going to get soaked up by hydrogen and make NH3, ammonia. Remember, the elements for life are hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen. When we saw them on Earth, where do we see our hydrogen? It's in water, hydrogen and oxygen. Where's most of the carbon on Earth? CO2, carbon and oxygen. Where's most of the nitrogen on Earth? in N2, nitrogen molecules. Those are examples of what are called, with the exception of nitrogen too, oxidizing chemistry. So if you have lots and lots of hydrogen around, the reactivity of hydrogen, this reducing chemistry occurs to basically lock up the elements of life into simple hydrogen compounds. The only compound in common is H2O, because it's the only place where, well, if we're looking at the distinction between hydrogen chemistry and oxygen chemistry, then obviously the common denominator between the two is water. So everybody gets water. So we're going to find these atmospheres of these gas giants are water rich, but the rest of the chemistry is dominated by this reducing hydrogen chemistry. And that's potentially very important for understanding life, because life as we understand it here on Earth is carbon chemistry. To have carbon chemistry, you, have to, you need to have more than just methane. You need to be able to form carbon-oxygen compounds, CO2, CO, some of these double-bond carbon compounds. And there are, in fact, in the sunlight and the heat welling up from inside of Jupiter, the bright colors here are things like, well, for example, the browns are thought to be organosulfides. So there are rich organic compounds out here in some of the upper portions of these atmospheres. But the primary chemistry is hydrogen chemistry, not carbon chemistry like we see on the Earth. And the primary forms of water that we're going to see are going to be either water vapor or water ices. Very little, if no, any liquid water at all. So the, we do not expect to find life in the gas planets themselves because their chemistry is completely different than the kinds of chemistry we find on the Earth. Now, Having said that, one could argue that I've taken a very provincial point of view and said, well, why couldn't there be some other kind of hydrogen chemistry that mimics the kind of carbon chemistry of life? The answer is, so far, we don't know of any such thing. So we don't know if something could, if some life process could occur in gas giants, but it seems highly unlikely from all the things we know about chemistry. The rules of chemistry don't change just because you go to another planet. It's the same physical laws all over the universe. What differs is the raw materials you have and the form those raw materials take. And what's interesting is in the gas giants, those raw materials are not in a useful form. The kind of oxidizing metabolism and oxygen chemistry that we know is important on Earth in various ways does not happen in these things because all your oxygen is locked up in water. 
So it's a big difference, really big difference in the Jovian world. We're going to see this a lot. In fact, one of the places to watch out for this comment about water out here in gas giants is every now and then you'll see a report, a news report, of some gas giant planet found around the star, and it's in a place where liquid water might exist. And you go, well, that's nice, but it's a gas giant. So there's going to be water there anyway, but not in an accessible and usable form. There's water, there's tons of water in Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. But it's mostly in the form of ices or locked up deep in the atmosphere and basically in the form of vapor or it gets broken down into hydrogen and oxides. So the Jovian planets are no place we're probably going to go looking for life. This doesn't mean we couldn't keep our eye, mind open, but it just really isn't looking too good and we've got to kind of concentrate our resources elsewhere. So what are the other aspects of the Jovian systems that might actually have something interesting for us to look at? Well, in addition to being these big gas balls, they also have enough gravity that every single one of the Jovian planets has built up a substantial system of moons. Now, in the inner solar system, moons are kind of thin on the ground. There's the Earth's moon, which is a great big rock. Mars has two moons, Phobos and Deimos, which are basically two captured asteroids. Mercury and Venus don't have moons at all. So there's only three moons among the four planets of the terrestrial worlds. When we get out to the Jovian planets, we're starting to get tired of counting how many moons there are. But we're going to walk through them anyway. At present count, and this is a number that seems to change every time I teach this class, Jupiter now has 63 moons. When I was in high school, Jupiter had 10 moons, and the 11th was discovered, and everyone got so excited. Now it has 63 moons, and you're like, oh, come on, please don't make the list longer. Um, of these 63 moons, four have been known for the last 400 years. They were discovered in January of 1610 by Galileo Galilei using his telescope. And we refer to them today as the Galilean moons, the four Galilean moons. And these, in fact, are the ones which are shown here as the little purple orbits deep on the inside. These are very large moons. They're bigger than 3,000 kilometers in diameter. They're spherical and they're differentiated. So they're going to be of great interest to us. The other 59 moons are all small. They're less than 200 kilometers in radius. So a big jump in size from big things to very small things. They're mostly irregular in shape. They're undifferentiated, as near as we can tell. They're mixtures of rock or rock and ice. Their total mass is less than one-tenth of one percent of the smallest of the Galilean moons, Europa. So these things are just debris. But Jupiter is a gigantic gravity suck, basically. It sits there and grabs up everything that comes near it. So it's not surprising that there's just a whole bunch of junk around Jupiter. And in fact, all these other orbits here are a bunch of that junk. In a 161 class, we'd go into these in somewhat more detail. Here, we're going to pass them on by because I'm really interested in the Galilean moons. The Galilean moons are giant moons. There are seven giant moons in the solar system. Our moon is one of those giant moons, but it's by no means the biggest one. These are distinguished in a number of ways. The first off is they're all bigger than 3,000 kilometers. Our own moon is about 3474 kilometers across. They range in size from Ganymede, which weighs in at 5262 kilometers. That's getting up. Mercury says things. Callisto, Io, and Europa. So Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa. You can remember them as the order I eat green cows. That's the order from the inside to the outside. So Io is the innermost of the moon. Callisto is the outermost of the moon of, 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 of Jupiter's large system. I've segregated them this way in order of decreasing size because not only are they different in decreasing size, there's also a difference in composition between the biggest two and the smallest two of the Galilean moons. Io and Europa, the two innermost of the Galilean moons, are mostly rocky. 
They're mostly made of rock, although they have substantial con components of ice, because they are, after all, five astronomical units from the sun. Sunlight's cooler. Ices can exist and, in fact, survive and thrive out in the place where Jupiter is. We're going to return to these two worlds later next week because they're actually very interesting. Io, because it is the most volcanically active world in the entire solar system. It has active volcanoes going off all the time. And Europa is going to be of a special interest to us because on top of all that rock is an extremely thick sheathing of bright ice. And underneath that ice, there is a good chance there is a vast ocean of liquid water. So it's going to turn out to be one of the most exciting possibilities for where we might go looking for life. But we got a little bit more places we got to go first before we go to Europa in detail. Callisto and Ganymede, the two big outer moons of Jupiter, are mostly a mixture of rock and ices. They're much lower density than Io and Europa, and they seem to be completely frozen over. They're not going to be as interesting to us. They don't have an atmosphere. They're cold enough to hold on to an atmosphere, but they haven't gotten one. Io and Europa do not have atmospheres either, but Europa has some hope of having something going on here because it might have ices going on deep inside of its interior, or deep ocean water. So we're going to come back to these later. So these are very likely places to go looking for something. We have a couple of the characteristics we need for life on at least two of these moons. Saturn has 61 moons, including one giant moon, Titan, and six somewhat smaller spherical icy moons. After you get past those seven, everything else gets pretty boring. Their sizes range from about 1 to 1,500 kilometers in size, with Titan containing most of the mass of the system. Those which are over 300 kilometers in size are spherical. Those that are under 300 kilometers are irregular in size. The first thing that gives you a clue here is that you can be spherical above 300 kilometers when you're out at Saturn immediately is cluing into you that you're not dealing with mostly rock at this point. You're dealing with a different material than we've seen to this point, and in fact what we're finding now are densities between 0.3 and 1.5 grams per cc, and that immediately tells you you're dealing with rock or rock ice mixtures. I'm sorry, ice or rock ice mixtures. So the highest density things, 1.5 grams per cc, is going to be a rock and ice mixture. Pure water ice, remember, floats in water, so it's got a density of less than 1 gram per cc. That's, but that's at standard temperature and pressure. So you've got to take into account the fact these ices are dirty rather than pure. You also have an admixture of methane ices and ammonia ices at play. All of these things show really ancient, heavily cratered surfaces. Now we're going to visit them in detail uh, when we talk about Saturn's moons, and in particular about two of the moons, Enceladus and Titan, next week. These are the largest of the moons of Saturn. They all have diameters above 200 kilometers. Of these, the smallest of them in this group are Phoebe and Hyperion, which are irregular in size. Titan is the biggest of these moons. In fact, it contains about, I think the number is about 98 or more percent of the mass of the entire Saturn moon system. And then we have a series of smaller, spherical, but heavily cratered moons, Mimas, Enceladus, Tethys, Dione, Rhea, and Iapetus. Saturn, you re may remember, was one of the uh, Titans. Oh, sorry, Titans. Was it Titans? Yeah, it was one of the Titans, one of the fathers of one of the parents of the gods. In fact, Saturn was the father of all the gods, including Zeus and everyone else. And he had numerous children and lovers and otherwise. And so the names of, of Saturn are all named for the various children of children of the Titans. So of interest to us here are two moons. Now, before we went, before the Cassini spacecraft dropped into orbit. The general bet was the really interesting thing was to look at Titan. In fact, part of the big part of the Cassini mission was targeting dropping a probe into Titan and putting it onto its surface. Titan is unique <coughs> among all the giant moons of the solar system in that it has a heavy atmosphere. In fact, it has a nitrogen atmosphere primarily, 
with a surface pressure of one and a half Earth atmospheres. This is a heavy, substantial atmosphere. But everyone pretty much else thought that all these other moons were just cratered ice balls and not worth of any interest. Turns out, as we're going to see next week, Enceladus is extremely interesting. In fact, Enceladus may be the other place in the outer Jovian system where we might even have a, a snowball's chance, if you'll pardon the pun, of finding life. Because some of the conditions we think are conducive to life, the primary being the possible presence of liquid water, may in fact exist below the surface of Enceladus. And we'll see how that will be next week. Just drop that out there as a little tantalizing hint of what's to come. So the moons of Saturn are interesting places, and Titan in particular is very interesting. We're going to return to that in just a little bit. Uranus, when we get out into the deep outer icy regions of the solar system, has 27 known moons, but none of them are large enough to be giant moons. A few of them, because they're made of ices, can form themselves into spheres like Titanian, Oberon, Miranda, Ariel, and Umbriel. Now, the observant in the audience will notice that all of a sudden we've stopped using uh, names from Greek and Roman mythology. Does anyone know where Umbriel, Oberon, Titania, Miranda, and Ariel come from? Any English majors in the audience? Yes, sir. Is it the Shakespeare's play? Shakespeare's plays. Yes. In fact, Ariel and Miranda, you will recognize from, from uh, The Tempest. Titania, Oberon, and Umbriel from Midsummer Night's Dream. And in fact, some of the other moons are named for characters from the poetry of Alexander Pope. So, for whatever reason, we've suddenly switched into using different names for the outer moons of the solar system. And in fact, it's uh, Shakespeare. It is Shakespeare and Pope get their due out in the Uranian system. But there are no giant moons. All of these worlds are frozen ice balls with no atmospheres, as near as we can tell, or only the thinnest of atmospheres. Nothing interesting is going on here. These look like they're all, for the most part, geologically dead places, so we can move on. Neptune has 13 known moons, the largest of which is the giant moon called Triton. Very unfortunate name, Triton and Titan get mis, mis, um, misdone all the time. In fact, I often put it as a typo on my own slide, so I checked it carefully this time. Triton is the most interesting of these because, in fact, it looks like it would be a dwarf planet if it was out orbiting the sun. And, in fact, if you want to know what Pluto and Eris probably look like, good money is, look at Triton. Triton is probably a good model for what Pluto is going to look like up close when we finally get out there around 2013, 2014. Otherwise, everything else that's out there are pretty much dirty, dark little ice, ice balls. Proteus and Larissa are the only other two of the moons that were imaged very briefly when the Voyager 2 spacecraft blew by in 1989. Most of these moons are tiny, irregular, not very interesting. Triton is interesting because it has a very thin atmosphere. It actually seems to be geologically active although it's geologically active in a weird way. It has geysers. Except the geysers don't spew water. The geysers spew liquid nitrogen. <laughs> so it's a really pretty crazy place on its own. It certainly is a place where liquid phase can work, but liquid N2, we use that as a cold cryogen on the Earth. I use it to make things really cold. It's got a temperature of 77 degrees Kelvin. So minus, minus a bunch degrees Celsius. So it's a strange place, but... Chemistry doesn't like to go on inside of liquid nitrogen, so it's probably no place we might look for um, life. But what's interesting is you can see these black streaks here, which are actually some of the plumes going downstream of those nitrogen geysers. Those black plumes are carbon compounds. So there is rich carbon chemistry going on out here. So the lesson of Triton is not that it's going to be an interesting place to look for life, per se, because it's just too cold and there's no liquid water. There's not really much energy going on there to help out. 
but it's extremely rich in complex organics. So even in the cold outer reaches of the solar system where ice is, all the gases we're breathing are frozen. There's complex organic chemistry locked away in that material. So these may be some of the reservoirs of the complex organics that when delivered to the inner solar system, to the Earth, to Mars, to Venus, are carrying the load of complex organics that are the building blocks of amino acids. So these are very interesting from that regard in terms of reservoirs of material, and they seem to be extremely common in the outer solar system. So a couple more lessons to look at, some things we want to see here that are going to be making these places of some interest to us when we consider them as possible places to go looking for life. We normally think about looking for life in the inner solar system where we're close to the warming sun. The moon is out, Mars, Mercury's out, Venus is too hot, so the Earth and Mars are kind of places of interest. And we'll look in more detail at some of the criteria for that in tomorrow's lecture. Jupiter and Saturn are just too big and too heavy, so we're going to stop looking at them. But what's interesting is if you look at this plot, which shows where they are in distance, this is now distance from the sun along the horizontal axis, and mass in terms of units of the Earth mass, we find that the moon, the giant four Galilean satellites of Jupiter, Titan, and Triton are all actually as large or larger than all of the dwarf planets. But they lie very close. They're locked in orbits around their parent, parent planets. The Galilean moons around Jupiter and Titan around Saturn, Triton around Neptune. So these things are all going to be kind of big. They've got a lot of gravity to them. They're really massive, and they would be normally dwarf planets. And they're in the cold outer reaches of the solar system. So the first thing is, these are big worlds. These are not, we think moon, don't think poopy little rock. These are actually would be worlds all by themselves if they orbited the sun. So that's the first point of interest. That means they're differentiated in their interiors. They have geology, if you will. Whether it's active geology or not remains to be seen. We'll have to look carefully at that. The second place where it gets interesting is remember that the ability of a planet to hold on to an atmosphere depends upon two factors. The primary factor is its mass. You've got to have enough gravity to hold on to gas and the temperature of that gas. A cold gas is moving slower and is easier to hold on to than a hot gas. So we take, for example, this diagram we saw before, Earth and Venus and Mars all lie above the line for carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water vapor and methane. And indeed, they all have substantial atmospheres of various kinds. Mercury and the moon have lost their atmospheres. Uh, Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa are the four big Galilean moons. They, too, are kind of marginal in their ability to hold on to gases. Europa, Callisto, and Ganymede, and Io are right on the waterline here. So they would really not be able to hold on to much of an atmosphere, at least not now. Maybe they could hold on to a little bit of CO2, but again, it's pretty marginal. There isn't a lot of carbon dioxide out there because you're out in the realm of hydrogen, and hydrogen gas is going to be important. But notice Titan. Titan's big. Titan's above the line for water, methane, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide. In fact, Titan is, because it's, even though it's smaller than the Earth by a whole bunch, it's in the cold outer solar system. And so it's managed to build up a tremendously big atmosphere. 98.4% nitrogen with the smaller traces of methane and then traces of other organics. So it has an atmosphere. It has weather. What's the weather like? It's a little different. It's too cold for liquid water, but liquid methane plays the same cycling role that liquid water plays upon the Earth. So maybe we shouldn't count Titan out altogether because there's not liquid water, because there is a liquid solvent. Liquid ethane, which is really strange stuff, or liquid methane. 
So maybe we have, can't be so provincial in our ideas about life. Maybe life can occur in places where we don't expect it. And so we're going to first stop to look at, having done our, finished our total of the solar system, let's turn to the question of the requirements for life and where those requirements might be met in expected or unexpected ways in our solar system.